Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today I have a legendary strength coach, Joe DeFranco, on the podcast. I'm super excited about this one. Joe has been on my bucket list of podcast guests for years now. I mean, since episode one, probably, and we're on 800 something. So I've been waiting for this episode. He is somebody who has influenced my career uh, tremendously. And there's so many coaches out there that have also been influenced by Joe. So if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you've probably heard me talk about him specifically, or some of my training methods, whether you realize it or not, may have came from him specifically among some other legendary strength coaches in the industry. But he was one of the main ones that really influenced me. So I'm excited about this episode because Joe has over 25 years of training experience. He's worked with people in the WWE, the NFL, the UFC, you name it. He's probably influenced them and coached them one-on-one. He is a world-renowned strength coach. And I don't know if there's anybody in the industry who doesn't know who Joe DeFranco is. So today you're going to listen to Joe, who is an un- apologetic Jersey guy talk about all things training. He's also going to dive into his story about how he had a tumor on his spine, multiple back surgeries, and still kept training through that and became probably a better strength coach because of the experiences he went through. Not only that, he created a gym in a storage closet. He trained pro athletes in a storage closet which is crazy. So he's going to dive into his story. He's going to teach you a lot today that is not only science and evidence-based, but it's also actually practical. And we even get into the difference between experience and being in the trenches and science and evidence-based coaching. So tune into this one. You guys are going to love this episode. And without any further ado, let's get on to the interview with the one and only legendary strength coach, Joe DeFranco. All right, Joe D. Man, I am excited about this one because you have been on my my podcast bucket list for a while, dude. It's been... uh, And as you can see, I, I... I bugged you a few times in the DM, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna send this guy one more DM, see if he will he will pick up on it. And sure enough, fourth time was a charm, and and I'm glad to have Timing you. Timing is everything. Yeah, it is. So uh, I'm really excited about this. First and foremost, I want to dive into a little bit of your story so the listeners can uh, learn more about you and just appreciate uh, how long you've been doing this, all the knowledge you have, and and what you've given back to the industry. Because as I was telling you before we started, you've uh, influenced my career a ton. So I have the utmost respect for you, and I want to first and foremost just highlight the kind of the background story of Joe D. So if you could fill us in with, I mean, how long you've been doing this and like where it all kind of started. I know that takes you back and like to the very beginning, but like, I want to know like the origin stories to start with. Yeah. And, and thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. So uh, following some of your stuff now, it's, it's very cool and humbling for me to see like the leaders in the industry, like you've been saying, you've been doing this, what, 12 plus years or more, um, you're like a veteran and an experienced dude now where, uh, but you were following my stuff as like a kid. So it makes me feel old, but it's also very cool to see that some of my content, you know, was affecting and influencing some of the the leaders in the industry now. So uh, it makes growing old a, a little bit, a little bit easier. Uh, these, these grays in the beard are, uh, you know, a little more worth it when I hear that. So appreciate that. Uh, I'm 47. I got, I've been doing this, I've been training since I'm 11. So I've been training, you know, 36 years of my life, um, professionally training other clients as a profession. I've been doing, I'm going on 25 years this January. I have the 20 year anniversary of my business. It will be January, 2023. Um, Prior to that, I had an internship at the Parisi Speed School, which was like um, the only athlete training center at that time. Uh, Right out of college, I really wanted to work with athletes. So uh, I got an internship there, worked there for five years first before starting my own business. But backtrack from even that, I grew up obsessed with football. I was like, just, I just gravitated towards it. It wasn't like, my dad pushed me into it or anything. It was one of those things they said, like, you know, football was on the TV. And at two years old, that was my sport obsessed football helmet, you know, every birthday dress up as a football player, the the whole deal um, started playing football at seven years old, excelled, did pretty well at it, you know, went to a high school, a, a powerhouse here in New Jersey, Bergen Catholic High School literally just to play football. It was an all boys school where you had to wear a shirt and tie every day. And I've been like a sleeveless t-shirt, you know, meathead kid 
and and shorts for like my entire life. So that was a big deal for me to go to a, a Catholic school where you had to wear a shirt and tie to school every day. But I went because they had the best football team in the state. Uh, you know, that's how how important it was to me and ended up not trying to sound like Al Bundy, if I don't even know if your audience will uh, <laughs> knows that reference. But um, old Married with Children, a show where the guy, it was like an old guy who always used to brag about his high school football mm-hmm. days. Um, we, we were, we were 22 and oh, you know, number one ranked in the state nationally ranked. I was the team captain, um, getting scholarship offers from the time I was a sophomore. Like I was getting letters from like Nebraska and like some big time football schools. Unfortunately, my senior year, I had a really bad concussion and also, one day, literally um, during training camp, I woke up with just severe shooting nerve pain down my leg, um, assumed it was something that happened at camp because I'm in football camp at this time. But very long story short, the pain never goes away, it, like excruciating, excruciating back pain and nerve pain shooting down my leg that no matter what I did, it wouldn't go away. I was ta- I used to carry Advil in my pocket. I was taking like 15 Advil a day, going to doctors, um, played my whole, turns out it was a tumor growing inside of my sacrum. And that's why um, it didn't show up on x-rays or MRIs. It just showed up as like an abnormality in the sacrum, but they blew it off as like, oh, you probably have a little stress fracture, wear and tear, you know, you're playing, you been playing football your whole life. Um, But it really, I still played very well. I played my entire senior year with a tumor in my back. Um, And, and they didn't treat concussions like they do now, like, you know, headaches, dizziness, and I'm still getting hit in the head every day playing the rest of my senior year. But my performance did drop a bit, lost a lot of the scholarships that were kind of verbally offered to me. So I ended up going to a division three school while I'm going to New York every day, you know, New York Hospital for Special Surgery, neuro, different neurosurgeons, back specialists. Um, I had a, a biopsy where they cut through my stomach to take a biopsy of the anterior portion of my sacrum, which to this day left me with nerve damage and issues down my leg. Again, v- very long story, kind of short. Um, four years later, my senior year, it, so I play two years of division three college football. The The pain just gets so severe. It kills me, but I have to, I can't play anymore. Um, I'm like, I, I just, I can't even walk at this point. They discover by the time I'm a senior, they discover I had a, a tumor growing in my sacrum have a, after three surgeries and over 50 experimental procedures over the course of the previous three years, they finally remove the tumor. Um, but I have so much residual damage and, and like I, the pain is gone, but I'm still, you know, not good enough to where I could have played football. Plus I'm almost done with college at this point. Um, at that point though, I do the next best thing because I was depressed as hell. I'm like, I need something to occupy my brain with. I don't have football anymore. I just, I was studying exercise science cause I always love training for football and performance uh, training. So I studied exercise science in college and just engrossed myself in that, like read every book, article, you know, anything I could get my hands on just became obsessed. Like I had like a one eight GPA in every other subject and a three nine, you know, I had a four O in, in my major subject. I was like an idiot in every other class, but excelled in my, in my major study. And then after that, that's where, I decided, okay, you know, the the dream of playing the NFL obviously is gone, but I really love, you know, the next best thing is helping other athletes and and maybe I could help other people achieve their goals and and help them achieve, you know, things that I I couldn't because of these circumstances. So, you know, turn that negative into a positive and just engrossed myself in that and that's where we get to uh right out of college, I get an internship at the Parisi speed school, which was like the only, um, it was, it was a regular health club, but they had a side that was just for training athletes where it was mostly speed training for younger kids, but it was, it was getting my foot in the door. You know, I started as an unpaid intern for a year and a half and worked my way up to being the director of training there. 
uh, had a great run there for five years, you know, similar to yourself, you know, working for someone else. It was great. I gained a ton of experience. And then at 27, it was time. I said, you know what? I want to try to do this on my own and uh, but didn't have a ton of money because it's not a profession, especially back then that was paying a ton of money. So with the little money I had, I and my first gym, for those who don't know, uh, was literally the the health club that I when I came home in college, uh, the the health club that I would train at by my house, they had in the basement, there was a storage closet where they had broken equipment and just like it was a storage closet for old broken crap. I had gotten to know the owner. So I asked him if I could rent, if I cleaned out, if I got rid of all the broken equipment, cleaned it up, threw a slab of paint on the walls. Can I rent out that 500 square foot room to train athletes? He thought I was crazy because he's like, I have a whole health club. I would love to have you come on as a trainer and train in the actual gym that we have. But I was so obsessed with like, at that point, I was into like the West Side stuff and, you know, athletes. I wanted my own, even if it was only 500 square feet instead of the, you know, 10,000 that I would have access to in the gym. I was like, I want my own little atmosphere. Like I, I was into Rocky growing up and like the hardcore type of gym. So he goes, listen, if you're going to, yeah, shit, I'll take your money. You could pay to, you know, I'm making no money off the storage closet. And he ended up charging me $1,600. That's how expensive stuff is. This is 2002. I gave him, I paid him $1,600 a month for a 500 square foot closet in the basement of this gym. And, uh, Started with a couple high school kids that were um, uh, football players from my alma mater because I still had kind of a, you know, a name after graduating there. Got a couple high school kids. And then that grew within three years in the storage closet with no money, no advertising, just word of mouth. I had 11 guys from the New York Giants training with me. High school kids from all over the state of New Jersey traveling to come to this storage closet and then eventually moved out and opened up my first facility that I could kind of call my own uh, three and a half years after starting in that storage closet. So that's the whole, the the origin story, as, as quick as I can make it, uh, the story behind my my humble beginnings. It's uh, the, the storage closet tight, like it just, it's such a good, it's <laughs> such a good title of a story. Like it just is, it's so wild. And it's cool because I've, I almost want to, suggest you redo your story a little bit on your podcast because now that I think about it being somebody who's been a listener for so long like man I haven't heard that story in a long time and I gotta imagine there's probably a lot of people who don't actually understand the injury you went through and and getting through that and 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 that was one of the questions I was gonna ask is like how did you figure out how to train with that because you know once I started getting into a, a little bit of like Stuart McGill stuff and like learning how there's like you know a back injury isn't just a back injury but a low back mm. injury can come from so many different things it's so much more difficult to figure out how to train somebody because somebody can ask well should I do a reverse hyper eh, well maybe well should I be doing like uh, anti-extension maybe should you should I be doing anti-flex or anti-rotation like it's it's so dependent on the injury like how did you figure out what to do yeah, by by doing is the best. And that's where like experience is the best teacher. And like you, like I mentioned, I read everything. I I got, I called Stuart McGill on the phone in like 1998. It's funny how he's now the back guy. Mm-hmm. At that time, he was like a guy that a couple guys that I knew in the industry were like, I, this guy's pretty good with back stuff. Uh, you know, you try, try him. And now like you say the name McGill and he's just like associated with the leading back expert in the world. But, but even talking to him back then, it's funny. Um, I don't want to get too much on a tangent, but I think this is very important for especially young trainers or just people who listen to your podcast that are into training and fitness and want to be the best versions of themselves without breaking their body down. And and when they're 40, now they can't train and do all the things they love. Perfect example, reverse hyper. Louis Simmons talks about it, you know, curing his back pain and helping his back pain and being the best thing ever. And I don't deny that it didn't help him and his specific back pain. When I, after I had the tumor, I had, because the tumor was on the right side of uh, shooting down the right side of my leg, 
I couldn't bend that way. So I was always, always lopsided. I was always trying to get away from the pain and like leaning off to the side. Anyway, um, three years after the tumors removed, my disc ruptures laterally and and wraps around the nerve. So I, I had a, another back surgery where they went to just quote unquote clean up around the nerve, but ended up damaging that nerve. Um, at that time, they also see I have like horrible uh, stenosis that had developed probably a combination of football and all the different procedures and just the trauma to my back at that point was it's like a 90 year old at, you know, 21. But my point being, I buy, I literally I don't have barely any money. The first piece of equipment I bought for the storage closet is a reverse hyper. I was so excited. I was like, all right, I'm going to finally, all this back shit I dealt with, I'm curing it myself. I'm going to get out of pain for the rest of my life. I was the only person in my gym at that point who the reverse hyper made my back pain worse. The nerve pain got completely uh, worse. And for the, for the stenosis, and I had a couple different things going on, but what I learned, and this was just from experience, for stenosis and like the narrowing um, if your pain is coming from that, I felt better like flexing and like sitting over and what people would call bad posture got me out of pain. Extension based stuff would trigger the pain. So here I am like, you know, throwing my feet back and, and doing the arch, you know, how Louis teaches it and really extending my low back. And the, the, the pain is getting worse and worse yet. I'd have some people that complained of, you know, more minor back pain and they do a couple light body weight sets of reverse hypers and say, holy shit, this, I, it, my pain went away. Like it, it cured my pain. You're a genius. So it's just a good example of like, exp you have to try it for yourself. Don't do something just because I'm telling you to do it. And as I've gotten older, I make sure I do my best to preface everything with this is my experience. I have a ton of it and I've trained a lot of people, but this worked for me and some others, but not everybody. This didn't work for me, but I have a ton of clients that it did work for. So I'm always trying to be as nuanced as possible. But unfortunately, we live in the day and age of social media and we have seven seconds to get people's attention and then, you know, you post something and then if there's not enough context, people are calling you out on it. It's it's a whole thing. But it, you you no better way than to get in the gym, do it yourself and um, and with others. If you're lucky enough that you could have experience knowing that just because something works or doesn't for you know that that doesn't mean it's it's good or bad. Like everybody is different. You will certainly find some trends. I have you know, techniques, exercises, things that I do that I say, this, this is pretty tried or true. This is going to work for 95% of your population, but there's other things that are like 50, 50 works great for some, not for others. Best ways to get in the gym, do it yourself and figure it out. I love that. This is actually a perfect segue to, to one of the things. And it's actually why, uh, we, when I went off, started doing my own thing, it was just named after me. And then I started building a team and I rebranded and we called the company tailored coaching method for this exact reasons because everything is individual you know even I the the that. most like general stuff that we talk about a lot of times you end up having to narrow it and um yep. sometimes younger trainers get frustrated when i give them this advice and they'll ask me for business advice or which i do and I, especially when they want to be an online trainer and i always say like go train people in the gym for as long as you can because when yeah. i was interviewing for an internship i told luca that i wanted to build a website and do a fitness thing. And he actually was like, how are you going to make money? And at the time I was like, I don't know. I just see Nate Green and Jason Frugia. They're doing something to pay their bills. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but that, and he, uh, he actually told me train people every day for five years straight here. Then you'll have the right to do that. And so I train people every day for six and a half years. And then I finally was like, all right, now's the time to go do it. And I think there's, there's a lot of value in that. And, and I know that you will appreciate that and agree with that. And one of the, the, the questions I had listed is, is kind of around this idea. I think now we have, like when I first started, you and Dave Tate and, and Christian Thibodeau and all these people I would look to and learn from, that was my research, quote unquote. And now, it, fortunately, there's so much funding to actually get research done. Mm -hmm. But I feel like people lean on it so much. And, and you know, we had Eric Helms on the podcast and, I, and he's a researcher, but the 
quote he said was great. He said that research is done or, or science is based on averages. Coaching is based on individuals. And I love, I that. love that. But how do you determine, you know, when to look into research and when to lean more on your experience? Because obviously a study done with a hundred people, it'll give you an idea, but is it the end all be all? And there's people online that it's just black and white. This research study says this. So that is the advice for everybody. Yeah. And I, li- you know, I live that. I don't know how much you um, followed back when about uh, in the early 2000s, when I, when I started my own business is when I really um, actually it even started earlier than that, but with uh, a perfect example, heavy, uh, once I started working with exclusively athletes and then I developed a help develop a combine prep program when I was at the Parisi speed school. And then I continued it on my own and, you know, helping trying to help guys in the shortest amount of time possible, improve their 40 yard dash. We realized like, you know, focusing more on the first 10 yards was something we wanted to do because you could run a lot more tens and recover from them faster. So we could get more work in, in a short amount of time with less potential for injury and has a very high carryover to improve in their 40 if you improve that first 10 yards so one of the ways we were doing that was with heavy now that's become so common everybody's pushing a prowler everybody's mm-hmm. pushing a sled it's in the freaking crossfit games but back then nobody had sleds like i myself jay frugia and like zach Evanesh were like had the the warehouse gyms with the sleds and the tractor tires but i was really doing a lot of in-house research um on how these heavy sled pulls and pushes were transferring over to 10-yard sprint times and 40-yard sprint times. And at one point, I had over 20,000 10 to 20-yard electrically timed sprint times that were done after heavy, basically, you know, like a contrast training pairing where we do a heavy-ass sled drag and then run 10s, over 20,000 uh, electrically timed sprints where guys were getting faster, not every single time, but I mean the large majority and then retesting them after incorporating these heavy sled drags, not always using it as a contrast training pairing, just seeing, you know, testing them on a separate day. How are their times compared to when they first came to me? And it was just overwhelmingly a positive on these heavy sled uh, drags were helping with their acceleration there. It, it was helping them apply more force into the ground in the proper position. Their technique was better because they had a, a steeper lean, which is better for the acceleration angle, not to get too into the, you know, sprinting mechanics, but it was, it couldn't be argued. I was like, dude, I don't think there's a person in the country right now that's doing as many have as much heavy sled work paired with sprint work as me, but the research was all saying if you sprint or, you know, sprint, push a sled with anything more than 10% of your body weight, it's too slow to improve sprint times and it's going to alter your technique. I was finding the exact opposite. And I was doing that. The first seminars I ever got asked to speak at were on the topic of uh, sprinting speed, like building speed in team sport athletes, improving 40 yard dashes. And I always, I would get destroyed by all the quote unquote, you know, speed gurus and speed coaches. I was the meathead who didn't know anything. You're, you're just a guy who likes strength training. So you don't know any better. So all you know is strength. And like, I got that for 15 years. I, I, I didn't know what I was talking about. Then I forget the, um, maybe it was like 2014, 15, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, JB Marin and Matt Cross did a whole bunch of research on heavy sled training and and sprinting with more than 10% of your body weight. And in fact, they found like 69 to 91% of your body weight was optimal for improving force production and, and short sprint time. So if I would have waited for the research, mm. I would I would have not gotten the results I, I got for 15 plus years. So that's one of those things. Was I aware of what the research said? Yes. But why am I going to listen to like 
a eight week study done with, you know, 12 untrained college men when I had 20,000 sprint times over the course of 15 years. Like I just stuck to my guns because I'm like, I know this is working. I have a, and I had nothing to sell. It wasn't like I'm trying to, I didn't, I never sold sleds or like, I, I wasn't selling anything. I was just reporting on the results I was getting. So in that sense, I would say, yes, I respect the hell out of like the researchers that we, you know, Brad Schoenfeld with, with hypertrophy and, um, you know, Brett Contreras is someone I've had, I've had on my podcast, who's very big into the research, but also respects the hell out of anecdotal evidence and just trainers who have a shit ton of experience. Like the, uh, if you told me like, Hey Joe, I've been, I've been doing this with my clients and like, man, I, it, it really, there seems to be something to it. Now, like with your experience, I would take that and say, Ooh, that's interesting. I wouldn't say, well, Cody, you know, there's no, you know, scientific research to back that and, and disregard what you're saying, because I know the research, while I respect the hell out of it, and we need it to advance the field, it's, you know this, it's always behind the top trainers and coaches because, again, they need to get, and and it's not their fault. They need to get funding. They need to, you know, there's so many different variables. It just takes longer for it to catch up. So if you wait for it, you will never be the top trainer. You'll never be the top coach in your area. I say respect it know what's going on, know the trends. But if you see something different, like just know that, that the, the studies, it's not, um, you know, it, it, it like engraved in stone. Like they, you're, if you're a good coach, you're probably going to be ahead of, of the research by five to 10 years or, you know, even 15 in my, in this, the sled, uh, example. It, it's, uh, it's so true. It's funny. I uh, you'll appreciate this. Before Luca brought me on, I I took a one of those like discs for kids to do a sled, you know, and yeah, yeah. I basically put I cut open like a punching bag that my dad had that you could hold, and I put sand in it, and then I duct taped it, and then I put a rope on it, and that was like my sled, and I would bring it to a field, and I would take people through conditioning drills at this like turf field by my house um, because I couldn't afford an actual sled, but I wanted one yeah. so bad, but, um, it, it's so true too. Cause I've had, uh, I've had Brett and Brad both on the podcast. I've had uh, a lot of different researchers and I know for me, once the evidence-based community started kind of growing, it, it made me kind of stop and think more about it and kind of go, Oh shit, am I, am I jumping the gun on this stuff? Do I need to take this so heavily? But the more I actually became friends with some of these researchers, I even hired one. So we have a chief science officer on our team. Dr. Brand Roberts, who does research. And the more I talk to them, the more they actually respect and agree with you. It's just that their job is to publish this research. Yeah. So people read it and grab onto it. And they look at it more black and white than the actual researchers do. Because a lot of them mm -hmm. will agree with you said. And a good example of this is, uh, it's actually crazy. You know, rest in peace, John Meadows, really big influence in the uh, bodybuilding world. I remember doing a mountain dog program God, years ago, I mean, way before, it was probably like 2016 or 17, right when I was getting ready to do my own thing. And he had all these exercises where you do like hammer curls and then you'd have partials at the bottom. And he was really specific on the lengthened range. You got to stretch the muscle yeah. and then sit in the, the partial. A, a meta-analysis just came out. It was just reviewed this month. Like it came out at the beginning of October. And there's a few podcasts on it with Eric Helms and some other guys that did this research on the lengthened portion of a muscle and partials in that range being more advantageous for hypertrophy. And that's probably why a full range of motion is actually so significant for most mm. growth. But John was talking about that almost 10 years ago. You know, it's like, yeah. so if he would have waited and he's a good example, there's so many guys that I think young trainers can look back to. And that's why I really try to get guys like you. And, and unfortunately I didn't get a chance to get John. I tried and, and obviously, uh, He's no longer with us, but I try to get all these guys on the podcast because I know there's so many younger trainers that follow me and they ask me where I've learned from, what, what certs did I do? What books have I, have I read? And I always say a lot of times what I've learned is from content in programs, like running your programs, running John's mm. programs and just seeing how you program and then trying to like figure out the thought process behind it taught me so much more than reading a textbook, you know, yes. not that that's not important. That's great. But, you know? that, that I did the same thing at you sound like the old guy, but like at you, at your age, I did that. I used to love that too, is 
um, reading programs and then figuring out, well, why is that here? Why is that the second exercise and not the first? Mm -hmm. Why is this on Tuesday, not Monday with people who knew what they were doing? And once you get good at that, then it's funny. Then you could look at a program and even if there wasn't the name of the person who wrote it, you could quickly tell like, okay, this is someone who's well thought out and experienced and knows what the hell they're doing. This is like Instagram trainer who just listed a bunch of exercises and, you know, there's no rhyme or reason, but that is a great, great way to learn that I think is underrated for any of the young trainers listen out there. Um, great thing to do, you know, support, support those who you look up to buy an ebook, buy a program from them. And instead of just doing it aimlessly because they're more experienced and that's what's written on the program. If you look through it and try to figure out for yourself the the whys uh, behind it, man, that that's I think that's incredible advice right there. So a good example of this from you, and I would love to hear how you discovered this kind of thing, but um, something I took from you, and this is another example of, um, so exercise sequencing, like the way a training program looks, you know, what you're starting with, what you're finishing, the order of operations is really important in programming. I, we do research reviews sometimes on the podcast and I had our chief science officer dig into a study on exercise sequencing and I was so excited to be proved right that this was a really good thing to do and it actually said it didn't matter, <laughs> which I think is complete <laughs> horseshit. But um, one of the, th- two of the things that I took from you is one, upper back training. I started having, I remember having clients do 50 band pull parts every day and at first it was, well, like Joe D said to do it and then I started kind of <laughs> <laughs> looking into it. And then the other thing was doing side planks and anti-rotation before deadlifting or squatting. And these are two examples of something I saw in your program. I just did. I felt better. My client felt better. And I was like, I have to figure out why this makes sense. And it ended up just taking me down a rabbit hole of your content to learn. But what was it that, that kind of prompted you to train people's upper back way more and then start doing some kind of anti-rotation before a deadlift um, like a side plank? The, the upper, the, the upper back thing was just something that I ki- kind of figured out, uh, both for myself and training so many, you know, I had a lot of, I was known for training a lot of NFL guys and pro athletes, but you know, what paid the bills were the high school kids. Obviously that's the, you know, the, the biggest clientele we had, we had hundreds and hundreds of high school kids coming in the gym and it was a lot, you know, my gym just had the reputation for being like serious, hardcore. That's where the serious athletes went. So we got a lot of, you know, meathead type high school kids that just everyone that walked in, they kind of looked the same before they started training with us. They had the, they all want to look like they got big traps and, and big chests. So they had the rounded shoulders and just no upper back, but you know, they got some pecs, some biceps, and some, you know, lats just because they're all hunched over. And so that's when, that's kind of how it started. I'm thinking, cause, and then we would ask them, Hey, what did you, before finding the Franco's gym, where did you train? A lot of them just trained on their own. So I'd say, well, what, give me just a, a basic example of what a program looks like. And anyone who's trained like high school boys, it's bench press, incline bench, military press. It's just all pressing. You know, it's all the muscles you could see in the mirror. And I'll I'll give credit. Initially, I will say I remember Louis Simmons using the phrase, you know, focus on the muscles that you can't see when you look in the mirror. And that always resonated with me because as I'm gaining more of my own experience, I'm like, wow, he's right. Because every kid I that that comes into my gym the last thing they need is more bench pressing i know they love to do it and will incorporate it in there but instead of having you know four bench press variations and then finishing with like one set of lat pull downs maybe i'm going to reverse that and have them do a whole bunch of upper back work and you know one main pressing movement and let's see how that works and that was again Um, Kind of a perfect example of a combo of what we're talking about. I learned from someone older and more experienced than me, but also went and put it to practice myself with, and I just happened to be lucky at that time, I have access to hundreds of, you know, test subjects, so to speak. So I'm doing a ton of upper back, every workout started our 80% of our upper body warmup was like upper back activation stuff. And then we would do a two different row variations in almost every workout. And what I noticed was, and this was another big West side thing. When you bring up someone's weak links, 
that not only is that weak link then not going to be a weak link, but the 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 show muscles, you know, the the pressing which we're doing less of, all their bench presses went up. You know that now everyone's happy because their posture is improving a little bit. You know the shoulder pain starting to go away. And without benching seven times a week, we're only benching once or maybe twice a week, all their bench press numbers are going up. So I'm happy. They're happy. And that's really how it started is just hearing it from someone who had more experience than me, putting it to practice. And that was one of those that like I I found what, exactly what he said to be true. And then the more I like, then you dive deeper into it because I always want to know the why like you like wow th- this is interesting i just come to realize like common sense wise it makes sense our upper back muscles are kind of fighting gravity all day plus now with the freaking phones and you know the, uh the internet and social media we're all hunched over at a desk looking at our phone sitting in traffic you know commuting to work so those postural muscles are just they're 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 you know being being uh acted upon basically all day so i found they could definitely handle more volume than you know other when compared to other muscles and that's why i was always big into you know not not more like lower in low to moderate intensity type movements but performed more often i found the the upper back and postural muscles to respond the best to so things like band pull aparts face pulls rear delt flies iso hold ywts on the ground they're all exercises you could recover from very easily so you could stimulate them more often and then it just be to this day 47 years old i do some type of upper back work every single day i don't kill it i don't annihilate it but i just enough to stimulate those muscles um, six to seven days a week in my program. Yeah, I'm. A, it's. A, I remember he's sitting right over here. But I remember when we first started filming a lot of my workouts, my camera guy would make fun of me because he'd go, "Oh, face pulls again or band pull parts again to start," and it was just like, "Yep." But you know, I even had a lot of clients that eventually, um, it, it turned into the muscle they enjoyed from a uh, like a visual perspective because they started noticing like they'd see a picture and their shirt kind of sit on their traps a little different. Yes, I'm like oh shit, that actually. It looks pretty damn good, you know? So it became like the show muscle, the mirror muscle when it wasn't even the mirror muscle. I feel like, the, and and Matt Wenning talked about this on my podcast. Um, to, to me too, as as looking at for performance and function, so to speak, while your average person in your average health club looks at like the buys and the, and the chest, I'm looking at upper back, glutes, hamstrings. Like mm-hmm. that's how I know you either have a, you know, if you're an athlete, you're, you're an athlete. Or you have a good trainer, you know, um, you, you see, you tell me a kid's been training with you a year, two years, and I, I don't see that shirt, like you said, sitting up on the traps and a little bit of a bubble butt going on like you're you're doing you're doing something wrong. Um, that was it's funny, the upper back thing, the biggest you before we started recording you, we, we were talking about WWE clients, mm-hmm. you know, when, when Triple H first hired me, obviously. Here's a guy who's jacked, who knows he, he knows more about training than than most professional, you know, personal trainers and coaches in this world. He's very into it. Um, he loves like the science behind it. And he he was, but he was big into the bodybuilding world. So trained like a typical bodybuilder. Unfortunately, later in his wrestling career, started having a lot of injuries. That's how he ended up finding me. He started researching how to train more like an athlete, et cetera. My name popped up a couple of times. He ends up hiring me. One of the biggest changes I made to his program was just that, like his back workout used to consist of before I started training with him, he would do a real heavy, like bent over row or dumbbell row, 150 pound dumbbell, um, you know, and a lot of lat pull downs and stuff. So he wasn't getting a lot of like upper back, like retracting of, of the scaps. It was more bicep forearm and even some lat work so i got rid of all the heavy back work he was doing the only thing we did the first three months i trained him because and he was also coming off of he tore his bicep tendon so he had shoulder Mm -hmm. surgery just coming off of that so band pull aparts face pulls external external rotation and um 
ISO hold YWTs. Just those things we started two to three days a week, worked up to at some point every day in his programming. We hit some upper back. He was getting measured for a suit. It was about three months after we started training. And even though we dropped all the heavyweight stuff, and at first he was kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know. I still, I still need to look the part. Like I'm, I hired you to improve my function, but I, I still got to look good in my underwear kind of thing. I said, trust me, trust me. He starts seeing exactly. You made me think of it because he said, man, I look at myself in the mirror when I got a t-shirt on and my t-shirt is sitting higher in the back. And then he's, he was um, in the corporate end of things on the WWE at that point, he was doing some part-time wrestling, but more like wearing a suit and tie running Mm -hmm. the company as well. So he'd get new suits every couple months when they measured like the, the uh, width of his upper back that had increased, even though he lost body fat, lost some weight, that was the 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 biggest. He knew all of his measurements by heart, and he texted me that day. He was so excited. He's like, "Dude, my upper back has gotten bigger in the last three months, and we haven't even lifted weights. You've been having me do all that band bullshit and all that body weight ISO holds." But that's that was another thing that made me just realize like those postural muscles respond well to just hitting them with a little more frequency. Yes, nothing wrong with a heavy row every now and then, of course. But for the most part, most people would probably benefit more from those type of exercises because with the heavy lap pull downs, the heavy rows, you're you're getting a lot more forearms, biceps, and other muscles. You're not hitting those smaller postural muscles that most of us desperately need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the funny thing about that too is uh, so when Chad Gable got connected with me, he came on and it was the same exact thing. He's like, I want to, I need to feel better, perform better, but like. I gotta look part like I'm in a, look too, you know, yeah. I'm in this like wrestling uh, gear on TV, and uh, he told me he was like, I can't bench, I don't press, uh, I have bad rotator cuffs, bad shoulder, something's going on, I just can't. It's out of the picture. And I was like, well, that's a pretty black and white statement. Like, let's look <laughs> at things, you know. And I'm not a PT, I'm not a physical therapist, but it was very similar. It was a lot of the same kind of stuff with a high frequency. Low. I was like, hey, we're not gonna touch a barbell for a while. Like, we're gonna do a lot of back work, a lot of band work. Sure enough, within six months, he was pressing again, and the injury wasn't that serious. He didn't have surgery or anything like that, but he was so convinced that he could never press again because that's what he was told. Like, I got bad shoulders. I can't press, and so doing some of these little things helps so much for those guys, and then he ended up, you know, we ended up working together for a couple years straight, and he was just, I mean, that guy's a savage. I actually ended up creating a uh, a program called Performance Bodybuilding because it was like he loves, you know, he was he came to me he was doing olympic lifts and i got some of this from you as well like he he was doing olympic lifts he loved like explosive movements i'm like all right well let's replace that bar with a a eight to ten pound jam ball let's do some throws let's do some slams let's do some some jumps with a band resist like things that aren't going to bang you up but they're going to give you that explosive nature and then we'll throw in some bodybuilding and here you go man and it was like the perfect blend that's the thing. People get so married to exercises. Like, like you, there's no set rule that says you have to use a straight bar in your program mm-hmm. forever. Like it's, it's what works. And I did, I also wanted, you mentioned the um, uh, like the side plank mm-hmm. and the, the plank stuff before squatting. I do want to give a, a shout out. Cause that was just something we, I learned. Uh, and this is a this this could be applied to many aspects of training. I think your listeners will find this interesting and super useful. I love learning stuff that I could like go to the gym tomorrow and and put it to use. Uh, and this is one of those things. At our certification, we we you know we have the whole system for warming up properly, and um, you know ninety nine percent of people out there certainly could improve their mobility, especially as you get older, it's one of the first things that goes. So, but a lot of people's brain also goes to, you think mobility, you think, you know, stretching, static stretching, and that's a whole nother topic. I'm not against any, I think everything has its place when implemented properly, but we brought Dean Somerset in. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. know Dean, but um, he's great with, with like you, I'm not a physical therapist, but I just, I, I found myself learning uh, and studying a lot more on like the physical therapy and corrective exercise. Cause once you start working with clients, 99 out of a hundred that walk in are going to have something wrong with them. So you better be well-versed in that world. So we're always trying to bring people in better 
uh, than us in in that world. And uh, Dean's very good with like corrective exercise and that type of stuff. So he came in and we had him as a guest speaker at our certification course. And he was given some tips and tricks for improving your squat mobility. And he just, that was when I first learned it. This was like 2011. He said, yeah, mobility is great, but we know you do need, you know, if you don't have the strength and stability, you're not going to be able to display your mobility. And that's something you hear now. Um, it, it's more common back then. It was not as many people were talking about it. If you were tight, you kind of stretched and he picked someone out of the, one of the trainers in the audience who said he had a real tough time squatting and with no stretching, he just had him do a side plank, like 20, it, not even that long, 20 seconds each side. And ha- he tested the squat. This guy had, you know, horrible mobility. And he talked about, he's got zero uh, hip internal rotation and very, very limited hip external rotation. Dean has him do a side plank, 20 seconds each side squats, do drops like 15% lower. Like, whoa, that was without, without stretching a muscle and he talked about how lateral core stability improves hip internal rotation and then anterior core stability so if you do something like a front plank or an rkc plank for a couple seconds and activate those anterior core muscles that will improve hip external rotation so everybody tried it and like the it was like a magic trick at that time like everyone's amazed with no stretching no mobility just activate the lateral core musculature activate the anterior core squat and it was like boom instant hip mobility so that was just one of those things learned from him and then you know again started diving deeper into it and and understanding a little bit more the why you know that happens and then it just became part of kind of our system of training like hey on on lower body days yes we're going to hit some mobility exercises in our warm up but we're going to finish with a lateral you know some kind of a side plank variation some kind of a front plank variation cuz that's going to activate those muscles that are kind of down regulated and weak in most people and it gives them that little bit you know it's temporary at that point but you're giving them some stability so then they could display their mobility and my theory was always, while it is temporary, if we do that every day before we squat, eventually, you know, now you're how many good reps are we kind of hardwiring into our brain? Now, eventually, that just becomes your newfound mobility. So I just wanted to give him credit for that one because that was that was pretty groundbreaking, you know, freaking close to 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did a workshop with Dean, too. He's really, really. Uh, very smart yeah really good at what he does um i i would easily say i mean there's it's hard to say this actually because there's so much i've pulled from you over the years but i think this is probably one of the biggest things for just the everyday person i mean the vast majority of people who we work with are not wwe guys they're everyday people who just want to feel better and be a little more jacked or a little bit leaner and the activation i call it activation and priming before yeah, a compound yeah, I mean, lift whether it's, you know, just the combination of like those core exercises, the upper back work. Um, I, I heard this originally from John Meadows way back, but I think you might do the same thing. Like uh, hamstring curls before a squat, for example, yeah. um, something explosive, but very safe. So we're not doing AMRAP box jumps. We're doing a couple box jumps, stepping off the box, something simple. Um before squatting, deadlifting, benching, overhead pressing, like that has made such a difference in the people we work with. It's absolutely insane. They just feel so much better. They're way less likely to get injured and they lift heavier. They perform better long-term because of it. A little thing. Yeah. The, the, the priming is the better terminology because I think way too many people, I, we, we, teach this at our certification, you hear the word, you know, warming up, you got to warm up. It's important. And most people warming up, like literally increasing your core temperature is just part of the, or it should be just part of the pre-workout process. Like, yes, you want to have a little sweat cracked and you want your, you want to be warmer. Uh, a, a warmer muscle can contract harder and it's less likely to get injured, but that's just, that's like step one. Now we got a little sweat cracked. Yes. You want to mobilize that. Most people do know that, but priming is what needs to be done 
before. It, warming up isn't just jogging a lap or, you know, getting on the Airdyne bike for five minutes. They know I got a sweat cracked. I even, I've, I've, <laughs> I've had high school kids that hated, um, you know, our pre-workout prep because it was kind of like, you know, it, like it's, it's a, a workout in and of itself for the higher level athletes. So I've had um, athletes show up in the summer and be like, yo, the air condition was broke in my car. And so I'm sweating. Do I still have to do the, you know, the warm up? Like, no, you, I'll let you skip phase one. You already got the sweat cracked, but that doesn't mean we're neglecting the priming aspect of, you know, that's more, that that's part of it. It's not just having a sweat crack. So people need to, to understand that warming up isn't just getting a sweat before you lift. It's priming those down-regulated muscles and, um, you know, weaker, often neglected muscles makes a world of difference for your performance and, you know, decreasing your injury potential. Yeah. Uh, I, I have like one more topic I want to bring up to you, but before I do, I just want to give any trainers or people who program a tip based on what Joe just said. Uh, those exercises, put them in the program as if they are part of the program, not as a warm up. I started doing that because people just skip the warm up in an online yes. world if I'm not there. So I just started, I didn't even, I don't even call it a warm up anymore. I just plug it in. It's just, it's one, a one B like you just, you just do it. And then I noticed people actually started following. There would be a warm up with five minutes of cardio, foam roll, do the tissue work. And then yeah, the it was, more general stuff. Yes, yeah, exactly. And it, it really helps. Yeah, we do, we do the same, um, the same thing we have like like pre I used to have these like pre warm up or pre prep cards like if you had if you were someone who always complained your ankles were locked up we had like kind of the pre uh, here's the ankle you know pre warm up for your ankles here's if you're someone who always complains you have a tight low back here's some general stuff you do on your own and some would do it and it would be very helpful but some didn't and if they didn't though with our the the one a one b and a lot of times in you know even maybe two a two b th those are more warm up exercises and um that's something i've changed over the years where we used to separate like to your point we had the warm up and then the first exercise of the workout was kind of the main lift mm -hmm. now um and of course there's it depends it's always you know exceptions to the rule depending on who i'm programming for but generally speaking the 1A, 1B, 1C, or 1A, 1B is some kind of a primer. Like if if the bench press is the main focus of an upper body workout, we're not one, 1A isn't the bench press. It's usually, you know, band pull apart and a row variation. Or if we're going to squat, it's a leg curl and some kind of a glute activation. It's or or the the front plank, side plank. That's now just become. 1a 1b 1c of the workout so they don't skip it because it's just as as you gain more experience you realize how important it is and uh if you want it to get done you got to put it within the workout so that yeah. is great advice yeah um so based on your experience and doing this for so long my question is kind of like you know in this i've watched this stuff kind of roll in as again the evidence-based community and more research has been done um, but once upon a time, there was no like RPE or RIR in our programs. And there wasn't so much debate and argument of the total amount of volume you need sets per week per muscle group. There wasn't so much talk about intensity. It was just, you kind of just trained. Like when I was in school and I was going through stuff, a lot of it was more movement-based, like push, pull, mm. hip hinge, squat, you know, like we had our fundamental movement patterns and then you just figured out who needs more of what and program it that way. But how has your opinion changed on that stuff? And like, what do you focus more on with, you know, building muscle, uh, getting stronger? Do you find that, you know, as research says, volume is the most important thing, or do you feel like intensity um, plays a bigger role? Like, what is your stand? I know there's no one answer, but I, I'm just curious of your thoughts on the whole thing. So, and I hope I, I'm not like totally not answering. If I'm not answering the question, then go just <laughs> okay. tell me to shut up and I'll re-answer it because I think bef before all that, th that I think that's almost the mistake is we're arguing over that. Like, well, how much, how many, how many sets should I do if you're just a meathead? You know, how many sets should I do for chest versus hamstrings? How much, what's the optimal volume for this muscle, that muscle, which I do think the answer is it, it depends on, and I hate giving that answer, but it really does. Like what, 
what other, are you an athlete? Are you in season? Are you off season? How old are you? You know, your stress levels, how do you sleep? How do you eat it? That's going to vary. But before that, I think the, the, the number one reason people don't get results in the gym is, and we kind of touched on it before, but poor exercise selection. Like before we talk about volume, you have to be doing the proper exercises for your current skill level, strength level, mobility level, your anthropometry. Like that's another big one that I don't think we talk about enough. Like some people love to deadlift and it's the king of all exercises. But if you got, you know, some little T-Rex arm client that just can't set up in the proper position and you keep having them deadlift because you have long arms and the perfect torso to deadlift perfectly and it feels great for you. I don't give a shit about that volume, how good, bad, you know, it doesn't matter. Like you have to have the proper exercise selection for your current um, ability, strength, body type, et cetera, before we talk about anything. And I will take that. If you, if you get that right, the volume is way less important. I rather give me the proper exercise for the client and do three good sets during the course of the week coached properly to perfection and then progressed over the course of weeks and months, that will get better results than optimal volume with a shitty exercise that you're trying to fit a, you know, a, a, a square peg in a round hole type of thing. And I just bring that up because I'm not in commercial gyms a lot, but man, when you go into like a regular commercial gym, it's like, is, is anyone doing anything right? Like, how many times you watch someone squat and I'm not anti barbell back squat, but I'm sorry, 90% of the people in commercial gyms should not have a barbell on their back mm -hmm. doing a full back squat. It's doing way more harm than good. It's not packing on any muscle. There's a reason it gets the, the, the reputation for being bad for your back and your knees. Guys like us will say it's squatting is not bad for your back or knees. We know that, but the way people do it, there's a reason that's, you know, that's out there because the way people do it 99% of the time at your average gym is a back destroyer and knee ruiner. So you, it's gotta be spend more time figuring out the right exercise for your body. Or if you're, if you're a trainer, don't just copy one of my programs or Cody's programs. Like if you get a client and they can't do a basic body weight squat in your warm up. Like they shouldn't have a barbell on their back. Most people shouldn't even be touching a barbell um, to, to be, you know, quite honest, the straight bar, while it is like the foundational piece of strength equipment and I love it. Um, most people shouldn't be starting with a straight bar squat bench deadlift. Like we call those the big three, the foundational movements. They shouldn't be, it should be, you know, push up, body weight, squat, ISO hold, lunge, plank. Like we need to, we need to, build that base level of strength, stability, mobility with the proper exercises. You want to execute them properly. Then, you know, worry about the volume and the, and the progression. So I, I don't want to, I didn't mean to skip over the volume question, but I think it's too important um, not to mention that stuff. I No, I think that's honestly, it's a perfect answer. I, uh, I get frustrated sometimes when I post content and people We'll see and they say like, well, how can I adjust that for a normal gym? And I, I just want to say like, I just wish gyms had this safety bar, had this neutral bar or had a trap bar. Like it's, you're not yeah. a power lifter. You don't need to use the straight bar, you know? And um, funny enough, I literally was just flown out to Pennsylvania to do a workshop for some of these trainers at this guy's gym. And before touching on anything else, I touched on exercise selection and limb length and how I, you know, I learned this. I got to train some, uh, some volleyball guys and they were almost seven feet. Some of them were seven feet tall. And I would set up a trap bar rack pole, like a high rack pole for me. Yeah. And it was a regular deadlift for them because they're so yep. big. I'm five nine. They they tower over me. But people forget about that, you know. And I think that's that's such a, a unbelievable. I mean, you can take that one tip and do half the volume and gain just as much, if not more, muscle with minimal stress compared to doing all. Hundred percent. We were talking about like programs earlier, and you know, taking. Uh, a good coach's program and trying to dissect it and, and, and figure out why, you know, they did what they did. I will give me a, a shitty program coached properly. And, and each of the exercises, even if they're not in the right order and the sequencing is off, but have someone coach it 
properly and execute each mm. one of those exercises properly, I will take that over a, a quote unquote perfectly written program, but poorly executed any day of the week, every day of the week, you will get better results with the bad program executed properly over the good program, you know, executed or coached poorly. And I think that's what we have a lot of in, in the industry. Like, yeah, this, this looks great on paper. And I know this only because, um, unfortunately I've seen it even with my own clients and, uh, you know, followers or fans, whatever you want to call it. Like people that will come to seminars that I give and be like, man, huge fan of yours, been following you forever. I did your West side for skinny bastards when I was in high school. And then, and then we get into the practical portion of the seminar. And then I watch this person squat and I'm like, well, man, I don't want to be a jerk, but like, you've been following my stuff for 15 years and that's what your squat looks like. Like, you know, but also they don't, you know, I, it, it, that's the point, like reading barbell box squat, like on a sheet of paper in my brain, you know, I'm hoping it looks like I know it should look, but the reality is if you're just some kid training on your own or, you know, some untrained guy or girl, it, it's probably not going to look like you want it to. So that's why as I've gotten older and more experienced, if I write programs that are more, you know, like public programs, I'm going to put out an ebook that's more for the masses. You don't see barbell back squats on there anymore. You don't see a lot of straight bar bench. You don't see straight bar deadlift, not because I don't like those exercises, but because I'm not going to be there coaching it. So instead I'm going to do a Bulgarian split squat because I know there's much less room for error yet highly effective exercise. You know, you're going to see uh, if you have a sled, I love sled dragging because it's pretty much foolproof. You're not going to get hurt, you know, big bang for your buck. Like it's, the least technical exercises that are going to help you pack on the most muscle and strength. Like you said, to your point, you're not going to see Olympic lifting on even, even my programs for my pro athletes that I'm coaching. I favor med ball throws and jump variations over for that reason. And that's what me standing right there, coaching every rep. So, you know, you got to keep that in mind when you're putting stuff out there for the public, I'm constantly thinking, yeah, I could put out a program that looks way more sophisticated and I can make myself look smart, but I want people to get results. So my programs have gotten way simpler yeah. um, as the years have gone on, as opposed to more complicated and more advanced, so to speak. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I learned that from Dan John way back. It was like the simplest programming <laughs> in the world. 100%. But, um, man, I could keep going on and on and on, but um, I know we got to wrap things up. So I appreciate your time today. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you. Um, your cert, uh, it's one of the, the most common certs I recommend for training. I think it's one of the few that is actually really good <laughs> compared to most. Thank uh, you. You could pass a, a normal CPT test in a, in a day, unfortunately, not know anything. But um, tell everybody where that they can find that, your content, your podcast, all that stuff. Um, so I can link it in the show notes. Thank you. I am, uh, I, most of my stuff on social media is on Instagram. I'm at DeFranco's gym and, um, our certification you could find at cppscoaches.com. The CPPS stands for certified physical preparation specialist. It is, um, it's for everybody. It's not just for athletes. It's not just for general pop. It's, it's the foundation that we feel, uh, for training humans is what's needed. And like Cody just mentioned uh, what, why we developed this, I never really aspired to have, you know, my own certification, but myself and my partner, uh, Jim Smith from diesel strength and conditioning, who also has, you know, 25 plus years in the industry. We had every single certification when we were in our twenties, I had five, six certifications. And the most frustrating thing was thinking I was so smart and I, I had a college degree. I had all these letters after my name and I will never forget my first ever client that I get walks into the gym and exactly what we were just talking about. I have them, I go to put them through a warm up and have them do a basic body weight squat to start. And I'll never forget what it looked like. Like most of it, you know, knees caving in upper, lower back round. And they like almost fell over doing a, 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 a body weight squat and, I had barbell back squat as the first exercise in that workout. So I was like, Oh my God, like I need, I can't do what I had written down. Like I need to think on my feet 
that's what our certification is. It's it's giving you the foundation and real world knowledge and and um, the practical aspect of implementing a program and then troubleshooting because we address things aren't normally, you know, nine times out of 10, things aren't going to go according to plan. So if this is tight, this is weak, they can't do A, you know, here's B, here's our system of progression, regression. So it's, it's a great course. Um, highly recommend checking it out. CPPScoaches.com. It's all online now. And uh, we do one day in-person practicals that are uh, optional. You could come at no additional charge and learn in person all the practical aspects of the course, or you could take it online. But part of taking the course and getting certified is actually making videos of you coaching a client. If you don't have any clients at this point, you could just be a friend or a training partner, but we want to see that you actually know how to implement um, the stuff that we're teaching. So different than most certs in that sense. So that's the uh, little background on that. And then I, I have a, a weekly podcast, the industrial strength show, which comes out every Thursday and uh, you could find on all the major podcast platforms. Love it. Yeah. You, you legitimately can't be a bad trainer and pass that cert. So <laughs> that's what we're hoping. That's the so nice part you. about that. So um, again, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, so much respect. You're a legend in the industry, man. And I will link all that in the description so everybody can check it out. I couldn't recommend it enough. And uh, thank you. Thanks brother. Stay in touch. I appreciate it. This was fun.